0: So have you ever felt overwhelmed by the sheer amount of information in your life? Uh, Emails and appointments piling up at work. And then at home, the car needs inspected and your health care needs to be renewed and it's tax return time. And then in the evening, you volunteer with a community group or a board. And then someone utters to you the most terrifying three words in, in the English language. Could you just... And you see 15 hours of your life disappearing, and then on top of that, there could be deeply personal things worrying you about your body, or your marriage, or your family, and that's taking up a space in your mind. At last, it's bedtime, and you get into bed and you grab the iPad to relax, but it starts to bombard you with yet more news and notifications and and commercials. You know that in our leisure time alone, the average American now processes 34 gigabytes of data every day. And so if you want to sell a thing, or raise funds, or win votes, or lobby for a cause, or just get noticed in this world at all, how do you get through all of the noise? Answer, you get louder, or more angry, more witty, more wise. You disasterize the problem, or you awfulize the other side. More often than not, though, you just show a little bit of skin. That'll get the clicks. Where do we go to escape the noise? The answer is to a little bit more of an alluring type of noise. Just more noise. And like as the Corinthian people, they were bombarded with information. Loads of it, a kind of cacophony of info. An infopocalypse was bombarding their ears. And we're going to take weeks to explore the many parallels between Corinth then and Pittsburgh now. But I think one of the most striking parallels is to do with how people communicated. They were fascinated back then in, in Corinth with rhetoric, with the way that people spoke. And public speakers would come in, and they would take up a place in the market square. And what we do on social media, they did in human form. They would start speaking, and they would try and win a crowd. And then another person would come and start speaking more loudly and try and take the crowd away. These are the divisive people that are in view for the first four chapters of the book. So it's it's well worth understanding this background. We're to understand what Paul is attacking. We've got to see what that is. And I want you to think of these characters as the original content producers. These are the original influencers, and people followed them. Just like us, the people that won the biggest crowds and kept them for the longest were not necessarily the ones telling the truth or even trying to help you. They were just the ones who said it best. That's how you got the crowd. It was all about style over substance. It was winning over truth. And this idea dominated the culture of their day. This competitive public discourse was the primary kind of lens through which they saw the world. And this idea was showing up in the church. Look back with me, please, at chapter 1, verse 12. One of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. This means the members of the church were shopping around for the leaders that suited them best. You know, this one supports my cause. This one makes me laugh. That one let me down. That one held me to a biblical standard that I did not like, so I'm off. They were bringing in this idea from the market square into the body of the church, and Paul cuts through all of this, cuts to the chase, and in verse 13 he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Which, by the way, in terms of its rhetorical sophistication, is the rhetorical equivalent of going, duh, no, you were not baptized in the name of Paul. He risks offending them at this point by dumbing down his sermon so much that it is offensively blunt. But it's a rather clever point. To baptize means to immerse. This is the ordinary word, as Ben said a few months ago, that they used for dyeing cloth. When you dipped or immersed a piece of white cloth in a vat of, say, red dye, and it came out a different color. That's all the word means. And the thing, into which believers have been immersed is the name of Christ. That's what we're covered by. We're covered by the blood of Christ. Sin left a crimson stain, but we've been washed as white as snow through the blood of the Lamb. Immersed in that, suffused with the identity of Christ himself. And thus, because we've been immersed in his name, And we've taken on his name, we're entitled to use his name exactly as though it were our own, we Christians. It means that our judgment and our death became his, and that his vindication and his life became ours. That's what it means to be immersed in him. This is the glorious exchange of the cross. This is what we believe. It's what we preach. That he took on our identity of sin and the penalty that it deserves. And then in its place, he gave to us freely freedom and life. That's what we've been immersed in. That thing, grace. There's no benefit to an immersion into any other thing. There's no benefit to any other name. And yet daily... Every single one of us is immersed into so many other things. We're baptized into stuff all day long. And we've been steeped in our culture like a tea bag in a pot for too long. Uh, in our town, our time, we've just kind of taken on some of the character of, of our city. We've been immersed in it. and uh, anyone, I want to suggest. Who's been feeling just a little bit overwhelmed and a bit stressed out or a little bit addicted to their screens and that 34 gigabytes of data a day has seen nothing yet. As a culture, we are all headed back to Corinth. That's where we're going. Over 90% of the information that we consume was produced in the last two years alone. By the end of 2025, 90% of internet content will be produced by artificial intelligence and advanced, advanced learning machines, not people. Now, any one of you in this room with a device of any kind will know how quickly and how easily we get hooked. We get drawn in and we scroll. You know, I, I went to a church party a little while ago. I forgot my phone and I spent all night long touching my pocket nervously. I realized it's become a social crutch, you know, just, I, I just touch it. It's designed to make you touch and designed to make you scroll. This little thing that we do is designed to draw you in. It's remarkable. And that's because there is an influencer on the other side of that screen, a machine that's been designed to make you follow. I am absolutely fascinated by this idea. So I did a test. I thought I'd see what artificial intelligence can really do. So I made an account with an AI content-producing machine. And uh, I asked it to write for me a sermon. And uh, I, I didn't ask it to look one up from the internet and cut and paste it like a moron. I asked it to actually create a sermon for me from scratch. And all I told it was it had to be about the gospel... And where it would be preached. That is to say, right here in this room. That's all it got. Gospel, Christ Church, Fox Chapel, go. This is what I got. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of God's grace, mercy, and love. Revealed through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings hope, healing, and freedom to those who accept it. It is a message of forgiveness and unconditional love. ...that transcends all boundaries and bridges all divides. It's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, I I do interviews for the commission on ministry... ...and there are ministers in our diocese that can't preach that well. That's unbelievable. It went on. At Christ Church Fox Chapel, Pastor Alex Shuttleworth... ...preaches the good news of the gospel. Through Pastor Alex's teachings, members of the congregation... ...are reminded of this message of hope and grace and how to live out the message in their daily lives. This is also true. But why is it talking about me? I did not ask it to do that. Were you baptized into Alex? Who cares about Alex? You shouldn't. The gospel according to Ben Hughes is one of hope and redemption. (laughs) Reverend Ben Hughes is a preacher with a powerful message that speaks directly to the hearts of those who listen. Through his passionate and often humorous delivery, Reverend Hughes brings the gospel to life, also true. But it's starting to sound like it has a favorite. (laughs) Ben Hughes is an authentic, enthusiastic preacher of this message, and his words are filled with passion and conviction. He speaks with great enthusiasm and clarity, brackets unlike Alex, making it easy (laughs) For his listeners to understand and connect with the truth of the gospel, warming to its theme. The sermon concludes, through his passionate messages, Ben Hughes has dedicated his life to spreading the gospel to millions of people all over the world. It got a bit carried away, didn't it? Why? Well, in three seconds, it analysed everything we'd ever said in this church about the gospel. Transcribed every sermon, every podcast, read every letter to the congregation, every blog post and website and notice on the app. But also in those three seconds, it analyzed everything all humans have ever produced, ever. From the first painting on the wall of a cave through to the front page of today's newspaper. And knowing what drives clicks, it made it all... About the messenger, not the message. Because that's interesting. Having said, quote, the gospel transcends all boundaries and bridges all divides, it then spent the next four paragraphs trying to split us up into tribes. It's what it did, because it's what we do. It's just showing us who we are, it's a mirror. That's all this thing is. So I think if we can understand how they coped with this cultural milieu in Corinth, we're going to be ready for what we are about to face as a society. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, meaning authority, excellence, or even intelligence for that matter. Verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He boiled it down to one thing. Not the gospel plus Paul plus Apollos plus Cephas to cause controversy, divide them up, create a bit of interest, drive the clicks, get some tribes. Just the gospel. That's it. Just the gospel. Verse 3 And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. One translation puts it this way I was feeling far from strong. I was nervous and rather shaky. If he tells us anything about himself, it's about his weakness. It's not about how great he is, it's not about how much he knows, it's about how vulnerable he feels. And he does this so as to manifest more of the power of God. First of all, my speech, my message, were not implausible words of wisdom, enticing words, persuasive words, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What can God do for you that the showmen and show-offs and raconteurs and robots cannot answer? Die for you and then rise. The scholar C.S.C. Williams once said, the world has had enough teachers. What it needs is a redeemer. There's just one. And our redeemer, filled with the spirit, one with the spirit, gives the same spirit to us. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us, and there's nothing beyond his ability to transform, save, rescue, heal, redeem. So I've been a believer for 23 years. I think in that time I've seen some of the simplest people in the world do some of the most wonderful things by the power of God. And I knew one humble lady in a church that couldn't read or write. But she was filled with the spirit. She was not a powerful rhetorician. She didn't give the sermon. She was not an influencer of any kind. No one followed. But she had the gift of prophecy. And uh, the week after I met Kat in church, this lady came up to us, and she said, she blurted out, she goes, Oh, you're going to get married! <laughs> and I was like, shh, you're going to freak her out. You know, can you go away now, <laughs> silly person. But of course, she was absolutely right. We did get married, she was right. And, and I saw her do stuff like this several times. You know, sometimes it was it was awkward, but sometimes it was life changingly significant what she would do with these prophecies. I think about myself. I can read. I can write. I've got some moderate to good life skills, coupled with a, a, a tendency, perhaps, to overestimate those skills and get myself into stuff I shouldn't be into. Uh, I have tell you. I, I can tell you. I have done church work in my own strength. And fallen flat on my face. I've also turned up with nothing. And found God already there. I have gone into some pastoral situations trembling. Just completely uncertain about what to do. When there are some situations where you can't really do anything. And i found that people on their deathbeds do not want influence. They want hope. The ESV study Bible says, one or two of you can see it, mere intellectual persuasion does not save people. Saving faith is produced by the heart-changing power of the Holy Spirit as the gospel is proclaimed. And the gospel is all about the cross. Look back at chapter 1, verse 18. The cross is folly. To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross, verse 23, is a stumbling block to the Jews, something to trip over and hit, stub your toe on, a scandal, and it is folly to the Gentiles. The cross is absurd. Mocked and stripped and crucified between two criminals. The death of Christ is the most obscene and humiliating sort of a death. Total folly by the wisdom of the world. None of the content producers and the influencers of the day were talking about the cross. Not one of them. They were all talking about themselves. In polite company at that time, to mention the cross was so shockingly vulgar and crude that it would have been like bending over at a dinner party and breaking wind completely, utterly vile, one little whiff of the cross, and your crowd would disappear immediately, holding their nose. To influence a crowd, you did not mention the cross. Any influencer that accidentally mentioned a word like that would find himself cancelled immediately. In 1857, an archaeologist discovered some graffiti in Rome scratched into a wall, and it depicts a Christian worshipper standing before a cross. But although the figure on the cross, the Christ figure on the cross, has the body of a man, it has the head of a donkey. And the sneering inscription underneath reads, Alex worships his God. Alex worships his God. Donkey God, ridiculous God. What is God doing on a cross? Verse 21 simply says, it saves those who believe. Leon Morris said, people do not receive salvation by exercising wisdom. Salvation comes to those who believe. And because salvation is a gift, Strivings cease. All of it. There's no need to make a noise to win a crowd if you proclaim the cross. There's no need to follow an influencer if you live under the cross. In verse 30, we read, You are in Christ Jesus. You're in Him. See that preposition? One with him, within him, housed within him, embodied within him. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Immersed in him, put right, cleaned up, paid for. It's not that complex. That's the gospel. So what are we are going to talk about in church? Uh, well, not the sermon the computer wrote. I don't think so. Verse 31, as it is written in Jeremiah 9, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what we're here to do. Let's boast in Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, we boast in you. We love you. Thank you that we're the donkey. And yet you took on this donkey body, this flesh. And then died the most shameful death we could come up with for us in our place. And having taken on our sin, you rose from the grave, vindicated, freed, alive in our place. Such that we who are immersed in you have the guarantee of rising also. Regardless of what we've done because you've carried it to the cross taking it on and taking it away. Thank you, Lord Jesus.